Oscar Poker. in the box office is um, basically a story of uh, Dark Knight uh, holding back the assault from <laughs> Total Recall. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Work out. <laughs> what happened what, 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 what were people hoping? Uh, tell us the story, Phil. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, yeah, no, no surprise that the Dark Knight was number one for the third weekend in a row. I mean, nobody thought that Total Recall had even a you know snowball's chance in hell of, of beating it. Um, Dark Knight pulled out. It's on pace for thirty-six point four million. Um, to put that into perspective, because you know the comparisons to to uh, the Dark Knight are inevitable. Um, the Dark Knight made forty-two point seven its third weekend. So this thing just—it's not doing Dark Knight numbers for you know one reason or the other. Um, you know you can blame whatever you well, we want. We know the reason. The, the, the reason is Aurora, uh, right? I mean, it can't be anything else, can it? Right. Mm. No, I mean, I think the, the, here's the vibe I'm getting from it. Okay, people love the movie. You know, it had an A from Cinema Score. The the Flickster rating is great. Everything like that. But I don't think there's the same kind of um, enthusiastic. I have to see that two or three or four times um, attitude that was happening with Dark Knight. I think Dark Knight just really surprised people, and Dark Knight Rises expectations were just way too high. And they liked it, but they're not enthusiastic enough to go for a second or third time. Um, I, I really think that's what's happening here. I, I still think it might, interest, it might, you know, scratch and crawl and get to five hundred million. Um, and I'd be, you know, really happy to see that. But it's the same enthusiasm just isn't there. I don't, I don't want to blame Aurora. I don't want to blame the Olympics necessarily. I mean that now, um, but it could be a combination of the two hurting it. But what? Those, it's not like one factor that's that's kill, uh, crippling it. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say crippling. It's not. You know, it's it's made three hundred fifty-five million dollars, which is incredible. Yeah, incredible so it's, considering it's what it's up yeah. against, right? I mean, it's incredible considering that a lot of people I talk to don't even want to go to the movie theater, are scared to go still. So hmm. to me, it's amazing that it's made that much. Considering I thought it would would have just died. Yeah, I mean it's well, it's definitely a triumph. Yeah, but you don't really mean that. You don't mean that it would just die. You mean that? Uh, well, what do you mean? Cause I it, mean it that maybe Total Recall die. would have uh, Total Recall without the terrible reviews. It had a bad word of mouth. Maybe without that, Total Recall might have taken it over. And then that's that for The Dark Knight Rises. It'll just you know keep going down and down, and then you can just see the headlines after that. It's a failure. But um, but the other thing is, Phil, is that The Dark Knight was more of a, a continuation movie. Like, it didn't cut things off. It didn't cut things short. It, it didn't really end on a downer note. Whereas yeah. The Dark Knight Rises is kind of like it ends things. It sort of does it in a melancholy way. You know, um, I don't know that you would necessarily want to go back and repeat that experience, you know? Yeah, I don't think so either. And I think you've nailed it. I mean, that's exactly right. People walk out of it and they're satisfied, but... The urge isn't as strong to repeat. Yeah. Right. Whereas with the Dark Knight, it was it was in the middle still, and it was you know it, it, you could just go back just for the thrill of it, you know, because it, yeah. it was thrilling to watch. This is thrilling to watch, but it's also it's also a heavy emotional movie, and if you take that with the shooting, you know, it's it's not a great combination. People go to the movies to feel good, right? So they're not necessarily coming out of that feeling great. No, it's, that's an excellent point. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, Total Recall uh, did twenty six million. Um, it's about what we were expecting, so not. I don't know, not a disaster, but not exactly good because I've heard you know the budget on this was was pretty big. I think like one hundred fifty, two hundred million. Um, it, it should play pretty well internationally. Um, That's a pretty pretty big gap between estimates. You, did you hear one fifty or two hundred? I mean, which one would seem the more realistic from what you could, what you were able to pick up or what you read? Um, look, when it comes to budgets, I usually tend to think that whatever's reported is on the low end of things. So mm-hmm. if the, if if one fifty is the number or two hundreds out there, it's probably, you know, I'd say I'd go closer to two hundred personally. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll we'll have an official number after the weekend because we fact we we do estimates estimates for how much the marketing was and, and everything like that and we come up with a, a you know a total yeah. budget okay. which yeah because I mean you can't just I I really hate when people and it's more the mainstream media is guilty of this but they'll say you know the production budget was 150 million dollars and it made 250 million domestically therefore it's insanely profitable it's like no you know they they spend a lot marketing these things people. Um, <laughs> right. you, you know, you can't just ignore that. And in Total Recall, I'm sure they spent a ton marketing it because I, you know, I've seen plenty of ads for it, and, and they're really pushing it hard. Um, so I don't, I don't think this one is going to be, this isn't going to be a profitable uh, movie. Which, you know, another another dud for Colin Farrell. He just can't. He, guy can't catch a break. Do you think it's that, or do you think it's the horrible thing of like the, putting two women on the on the poster? Do you think that makes a difference? Mm, no, I mean, I think anything, the, you know, Kate Beckinsale, and the, that might have helped. I mean, Kate Beckinsale has a, a nice, you know, cult following thanks to the uh, the Underworld movies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people like her, I think, and, and you know, sex sells. So right. I, I don't think that hurt it. Um, I think it just kind of looked boring. You know, the, the original Total Recall, you know, say what you will about Paul Verhoeven, but He's always interesting. You, you can hate his movies, but they're always they have that that level of camp to them. They have the you know, over the top violence, the the nudity, everything like that. They're interesting to watch, and this just looked like a total snooze fest. Um, Jeff, did you did you see it? I didn't even catch it yet. I wasn't able to catch monu- uh, catch it in Monument Valley. It wasn't playing. In fact, nothing was playing in Monument Valley. So, uh, <laughs> Except the the mountains and everything. <laughs> that would have been so amazing. Uh, no, the, the the Navajo culture, I guess, is not into movies that much. There's just no movie theaters uh, in in shouting distance at all. I mean, I know, I'm talking because about they're they're guy, many, they're portrayed many, many, they're nothing. portrayed so well in the movies. You know, they really can go to the movies and see themselves. So I. I you know, why do you oh, think they don't go to the movies, for God's sake? But I just want to say uh, one thing about about uh, Total Recall. Isn't it funny to think back on the original Total Recall? It seems like such an innocent time. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to go to a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. You know, end of story. It's like mm-hmm. nowadays things are so different than they used to be. Yeah, have you? We've all seen in uh, some all of the uh, Underworld films the, that... Uh, I think that Len Wiseman, who is um, uh, Kate Beckinsale's significant other, are they married or are they just together? But uh, I know that she and, and he have been uh, uh, part, partnered for some time, and he is the principal author of the Underworld films. Mm-hmm. Have you seen all of them, Phil, or I uh, any of them? Yet. Okay. I haven't seen any of them. Yeah, I haven't either. I have no desire to see them, but no. she's actually really stunningly beautiful in real life. I mean, I know that seems like a weird random point to make, but it's usually you see a movie star and sometimes they're as pretty and sometimes they're really stunning in real life compared to how they come off on screen. I think she comes off fine on screen, but nothing compares to how she really looks. I'm trying to make a point apart, apart from her beauty, which I've seen her in, <laughs> in person. I'm trying to make a point that Lennon Wiseman is a serious problem director who makes mediocre films he makes films that are basically about the way they look he's got great a great sense of production design and uh, um that's where he more or less comes from uh, as i understand it mm-hmm. and uh you know this they they knew what they were getting going in they said we're going to have len weisman who's done the underworld films do total recall they knew what they were going to get they weren't going to get a a, a really good film in a, in a Chris Nolan or Jim Cameron type way. They're, they're guaranteed. 
so you know they have no one to really blame but themselves i think that people even though people allegedly don't you know even glance at uh at metacritic or rotten tomatoes i think that they that i think that the secret is that they do kind of glance in some way or shape or form and it's the word must have been very uh you know loud and clear that this is not a great great film um it seems to be indicated by trailers so um you know why why don't we never address that, that it stinks you know it's a bad movie i mean that's what everybody seems to be saying well, yeah, I mean, it's, and, you know, they, they play it safe like that, and, and they hire a guy like him as opposed to, like you said, hiring, you know, a Christopher Nolan or, or James Cameron type. And then they wonder why they get these kind of just, you know, mediocre grosses. I mean, you know, it, it pays to take a chance and, and, and inject moves with kind of spunk. I mean, yeah. I think moviegoers are, are sending a pretty clear message in terms of, you know, what's successful and what's not these days. I mean, People, you know, they're responding to what Christopher Nolan's doing. The, you know, the fact that something like Inception can make, you know, more than eight hundred million dollars worldwide, is is a clear sign that when people go to the movie theaters now, they want to be surprised. Otherwise, they're just going to stay the fuck home. You know, that that's it. Right. Um, so good. You know, movies like this flops. I, I say, I hope they learn sooner rather than later that they need mm-hmm. to take chances. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. Um, one other, oh, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. No, no, please go ahead. Yeah, no. one other, one other crazy box office story. This is, I think, this is a thing that caught my attention most today. Um, Ted is a, a freaking juggernaut, not only domestically <laughs> but um, internationally. This thing's up to seventy-seven million internationally, and it still has um, thirty-eight territories to open over the next few months. Um, it hasn't even opened in Spain yet, and from what I've heard, it's basically. Universal can take this thing and they can dub, you know, since Ted's animated, they can dub whatever they want in there and, and make it very specific to territories. Um, so this, it's huge. It's, expect a Ted 2, you know, in, in two, three years. Oh, great. I'm look, really looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Do you think the furries are making the difference? Sasha just said, I'm really looking forward to it. Only in Sasha World. <laughs> I was we hear joking. about a movie that's been out for like two months. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to no, seeing that. No, part two, <laughs> part two, Jeff, part two. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> I think the furries are what's making the difference there. <laughs> but what about Beasts of the Southern Wild? Is that just ticking along? Because I keep hearing word of more word of mouth, more word of mouth. People keep going to see it. It's like it's a slow burn, right? It got to five million. It's not too bad. No, it's not. I mean, it's not um, a, a bomb by any means. I mean, yeah, right now it's it's close to six actually. Um, it did another basically one point two million this weekend. Um, but yeah, it's far from you know like a, a a crazy you know word of mouth hit by any means. Um, so yeah, I mean, just kind of like a, a shrug, uh, you know. I, I, I don't think, think so. it, I, I, I'm just this definitely hurts you. its chances for the Oscar. No uh, way. Definitely. I think that you are um, no way for the Oscar. There's just no way. The way people react to this movie, the way it's getting applause in theaters, and, and people keep writing me and saying how much they loved it. Um, I think it's I, I, box office is your business. I know for sure. But I'm just saying. I bet you it's not a shrug. I bet you this is going to be some kind of a story that it's going to go. At some point, it's going to catch on and go. It won't go up to like 40, 50 million, but it's going to get enough to be respectable. Look at the artist. The artist won Best Picture and look at its box office. What I mean, did the artist end up with around 18 or 19 or 20 or what was that? No, Something no, like that? Was, um, wait, hold on. I can't remember off the top of my head. Let but heading that. into the Oscars, it was really low, but it had such good word of mouth and it was so beloved, it just kept going it never really made a lot of money but it it made a huge impact on the oscar race and the kind of people that vote on awards are going to be blown away by beasts of the southern let me tell you if the people in the in the artist just the cuttings quick it was 44.7 after the oscars no that's total um i I forget what it was before the oscars i want to say somewhere around like 35 maybe 30 35 i don't Um, even think it was that high i can look right now actually but you well, guys the, keep talking. And the barometer, of course, we have to keep in mind that the thing to remember is not so much the artist, but um, 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 uh, Hurt Locker, because that was very, very uh, marginal. Yeah. Right. 
at its time. I don't think that was very high at all. I don't know if it even ended up at a, a decent level. No, that it did because is, I mean, it they they released that in you know I think it was what May or June. Um, yeah. And and then they weren't able to kind of milk the Oscar stuff. Um, it just it hit too late to kind of re-release it and and make any real money off of it. Um, so yeah, that was I mean that was really groundbreaking in terms of it. I mean it said look you know you can you can fail financially and, and we can we're still going to give an Oscar. Um, yeah. Normally that that just wasn't the case up until that point. Well, and the artist, I'm looking here on the chart, like heading into the Oscars, during Oscar voting, you're looking at it was like 8 million, 9 million, 12 million, 16 million, 20. And then after the Oscars, it started going up and up and up to the 30s and 40s. But but in January, it was only at January 6th, it was only 7 million it made. So I'm uh-huh. just saying that, you know, it, it, they didn't have it in a lot of theaters. They had it in, like, when they first started, it was in, like, four theaters, and then it moved to only 100 theaters. It never really went that big. And Beasts of the Southern Wild is only in how many theaters now? Is it in 100? 318. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's it's kind of, that's why I'm saying. I mean, it's 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 at that weird point where it should be, if it was going to, to go to more theaters, it would right now. And it, right. it's kind of just hanging in at, like, 318. Um, so, right, right, I mean, right. I, I think well, it, it's a good bit of counter programming, and it'll hang on, you know, into through through August and then maybe into September a little bit. But um, it's just not there. It's not happening for it. Uh, the, the thing that I've been noticing that I noticed at the beginning and uh, was about my 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 basic reaction, apart from the fact that it is a sublimely um, uh, alive and and. And oh, you know, really, like, one of the most exciting films I've seen from a certain perspective. But it is not a, f- a, a film that I wanted to stay in too much longer than what I did because I didn't find the atmosphere, and the mud, and the ooze, and the dead animals, and the lizards, and the, and the you know the alcohol, and the, and the constant earthy kind of grim, which is what part of the fascination. But I just didn't feel. Like I wanted to stay there too much longer than I than I did. I was right. glad when it was over. Although I, I was unmistakably a, a really stirring, uh, an unusual, and quite a good film. Well, but, every uh, year there's one movie that people are talking about. The yeah. kind of people who, you know, make kind of make the difference in the awards voting. These aren't people who are like loudmouths on Twitter or driving box office or trending on Tumblr or whatever. Nothing like that. But there's always one movie that I loved that movie. You know. And that's Beasts of the Southern Wild right now. And it might be a little bit Moonrise Kingdom for a certain, maybe a generation younger. But those two movies, uh-huh. I hear more from that kind of crowd. And believe me, I've been doing this for 13 years. I kind of know what I'm talking about in this way. There's always that one movie that's getting that kind of heat around it. I don't it, know would be, it... it would be delightful if it became that way. I certainly would not be, I would be, I would say things are right in the world if it became one of the best picture nominees, but I don't... It will. I don't know. You know, I, okay, then fine. It, it has, I, I, I mean, right now it has no competition. It has no competition right now. None. And think about the kind of right. movies that are coming and think about the kind of people doing the voting. You know, you've got The Master, which is going to be good, but... And then you've got a Tarantino movie coming, which there are going to be some people who are going to like that. There's Lincoln, hit or miss, hopefully hit. Uh, Les Mis, you know, it's a musical. Um, Beasts of the Southern Wild is going to stand out the same way the artist did. I'm not saying it's going to win. I'm saying a nomination should be an easy call there. Easy. Compared to how people, considering how people are reacting to it. It's a number one movie, if it's anything. It's a number one vote movie. It's not a two or three or four. It's a number one. People can vote for it. Okay, well, um, I would like to see this. But, of course, we have to wait about three or four months for this uh, dormant and sleeping but waiting to happen energy on behalf of Beast of the Southern Wild. But you bring it up quite frequently because it has been a very important film for you this year. And I Not just me, though, Jeff. Uh, people keep writing uh, in. I keep hearing from a lot of people. It's not just okay. me. If it was just me, Good. I would no, not that's, that's be talking I mean. about it. But I'm saying that you're bringing it up because, and it's indicative that there's a lot of people, as you say, that feel this way. So let's, I hope it manifests. And, it, and you got to have at least one of this type of film I, I, yeah thing, so. I bring it up because my my job like Phil's job is to look out for box office my job is to look out for Oscar movies 
and I have to, and I watch from the beginning of the year on through, and I see that there are two right now that are that are really strong, potentially strong Oscar contenders, given the way that people in the Oscars vote. I would put uh-huh. the Dark Knight Rises in there too, but I think that that's a long shot compared to how they vote. I think that Beast of the Southern Wild and Moonrise Kingdom are the only two that have, and I loved Beast of the Southern Wild, and I was okay on Moonrise Kingdom. It's not like my favorite movie. I'm not passionate about it, but as you can see, I'm talking about that one too. And I only bring them up because I'm just, you know, doing what I, I consider to be my job is the job description I wrote for myself, which is that I, you know, I'm looking at movies that I think are going to capture attention come Oscar time, and I think these two will. Okay. That's all. Well. What? Yeah. Let's do next weekend. And what, and what do you think is coming up? Do you think The Dark Knight will hold for four th- weeks? Yeah, I think it'll be fine. I, like I said, I think it can scratch and claw and then get to five hundred million, maybe. Um, I'd like to see that happen, and I think it still has. But it's going to be the uh, the campaign and the Bourne movie, and possibly in some small way, the um, smaller way, the uh, uh, Hope Springs. Hope Springs. That's, uh, those yeah. are the three big openers, right? Yeah, so it's going to be a very good weekend next weekend. Um, you know, I, I'm optimistic about all three of those. I think you know Hope Springs serves an audience that is you know tragically you know neglected in a big way during the yeah. summer um and you know everything i'm hearing from you and, and other people who've seen it that sounds great um so yeah it's not a great case. film but it's a it's a nice film it's nicely done uh it, it well, goes in into an unexpected unusual places certainly not a film that i've seen that deals with adult sexuality or not adult sexuality yeah. Senior citizen you know, sexuality. 60-something sexuality. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's pretty new territory. So. Well, yeah, and, and, I, and I, I, get I get that you weren't you know, crazy about it. You, you just were respectful. But whenever my kind of rule of thumb is that whenever critics say, we were pleasantly surprised by this movie, that's you know, code for, okay, audiences are really going to like it. Um, that's usually what that means. So... Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic about that. Born, you know, I think what's going to happen with Born is it, it might start off kind of slow, at least compared to the other movies. Um, you know, but if they pulled it off and, it, and it's still a good movie, people will get over the fact that you know Matt Damon is no longer in it. Um, you know, they'll live with it the same way that any other reboot or any other you know new new version of a, a popular franchise people take some time to warm up to. Um, and the campaign, I think, is just perfectly timed. Um, if they put this out in October, people might just be sick of politics altogether and, and mm-hmm. not even want to go to it. But but right now it's it's just warming up that you know Romney and Obama are sniping at each other, and it's perfect timing. So I think that's going to do really well. Um, also, so it's, it's just going to be a great week. And and the notion that August is a dumping ground is kind of no longer true. I mean, these are three very strong movies. Wow. Yeah. So, so campaign and born and hope springs are all opening next weekend. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And do you think the dark Knight will still come in at number one? No, no. I mean, it'll be done. I, you know, it'll either be, you know, born will probably take it, take the number one spot from it. Oh, you think so? Born will, huh? I, yeah. yeah. I think it does lose something without Matt Damon in it though, but we'll see if that makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think people get over will get over it as long as they still get the tone right. You know, that's that's what's most important. So. Okay. All right, Phil. All right, cool. well, All right. Yeah, nice I'll talk to you guys you. later and uh, have a good week. Okay, you too. All right. Bye. bye. What did you think about if we could just discuss this briefly? Um, mm-hmm. um, my reaction, uh, I think many people's reactions uh, to the most recent sight and sound poll, which was announced what three four days ago, mm-hmm. two three days ago. Uh, uh, was that this is a, uh, a very hermetic monastic society of, of, uh, of film dweebs or film monks. And, and they do not, uh, breathe in and breathe out what's, uh, what's been going on in the world. They, they are, uh, trying to hold up standards. And I, obviously, I think it's, it's necessary to do that. But to have only these same films over and over, you know, turn up. The big, the big news was that Citizen Kane has lost its uh, slot at the top of the list after 50 years. I mean, it's been there since 62, and mm-hmm. it's, it's every 10 years they do it. So, uh, 
what did you think about it? Do you do you feel? I mean, there there just seems to be something so hermetic and kind of uh, you know, um, uh, you know frozen in amber. The, this this way of looking at movies, and it seems to me that they just are not. Uh, you know, everything stopped in 1968. That was the most recent film, um, which was 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago. So. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, I think that the way they vote is that they write down 10 films that they like, and then they the the films that are mentioned most often on all lists are the ones that get, right? Like, if, if everybody put Vertigo on their list, then that Vertigo gets what it got, 191 mentions. And Citizen mm-hmm. Kane got 157 mentions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, is 2002, Citizen Kane, the highest vote getter, 46 mentions. So... You're looking at a much larger, almost four times the sample size, first of all. Mm-hmm. And that to me is strange, that when you get more people, the consensus shifts to Vertigo being more popular and Citizen Kane being less popular. But Citizen Kane's votes were still like three times the amount that Citizen Kane got back in 2002, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it still beats its own record. It just doesn't beat Vertigo as many times as it gets mentioned on lists. Like, if you and I were to do a list, and I had nine films out of ten that were different from yours, but we both had Vertigo, we would both be voting for Vertigo as the best film of the year, even if we didn't have it at number one. Yeah. So I don't know. I think the results are a little bit misleading in that way. It's just the well, most. People. Well, then the system of voting is very flawed. Then, wouldn't you say? Because it, it really is a. Uh, there has to be more fluidity and give and take, and you know, it has to be. Uh, it can't be such a, a rigid, rigidly confined and rigidly uh, uh, defined uh, a system. It just feels like there's no. There's no movement. Things have just. You well, know. maybe if they did more of what, like what the academy does, they did a weighted ballot. They did it more ranking. Uh-huh. What what most people consider to be the number one film of the year. I don't think that's the way they do it. They don't put it at number one. They just uh, mm-hmm. they don't weight the polls. They just look at how many people mentioned a certain movie. So I think that makes a difference because if you ask them individually, do you think Vertigo is the best film ever made? You know, um, I don't know that they would all say yeah, I do. But the way mm-hmm. the list works out is that those are the films that almost all of them could agree are among the 10 best films of, the, of all time. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like looking at a salt and pepper shaker for 50 years and then moving the pepper in front of the salt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make much sense to me, mm-hmm. the, the list, because it's so unremarkable. Mm-hmm. It, cha- it, it rarely changes, you know, and mm. I just don't know if I... I, I like the director's – I'll put it this way. I like the director's list better than the film critics list, the way that the directors voted. I think they, they have a better idea of mm. of the best movies. Yeah. Um, but still, it's weird. I don't know how you get minds to change so dramatically where you have – even among the directors in 1992, you had Raging Bull, The Godfather, and The Godfather Part Two on the top ten. 2002, you had The Godfather, Godfather um, Part Mm 2, and Raging Bull in the top 10, and Dr. Strangelove, which I think is a better movie than 2001. Um, And then this year, you have The Godfather and No Godfather 2 from the directors. And it's just, it's weird. I mean, there's there's just, and and 2001 as opposed to Dr. Strangelove in 2012. Mm Mm-hmm. So for mm. me, what's interesting is what, what, what happens in our culture that makes people change their minds about movies. The movies stay the same. The people change, right? Yeah. So Life changes. Everything is refreshed. Everything is you know be, rebuilt and re- reassembled uh, on a molecular, infinite level all around. So it just doesn't figure that things would be this uh, set in stone. Uh, it just... There's just life is not that rigid uh, uh, proposition. It's a living, breathing, continually changing and evolving thing. Right. It's really strange. It's really strange that no modern movies made it in, and that you know, if we're going to look at movies that we kind of know now and think are great, we're going to have to wait another twenty years 
for those movies to show up on their list in the top ten, and I, I don't got twenty years. To, to <laughs> I mean, people of Emma's, Emma's generation, uh, my son's generation, the movies uh, made before, say, nineteen ninety, uh, in other words, starting in the maybe the mid eighties, but that's about as far back as they want to go. Uh, but so forget the early 80s, forget the whole glorious 70s period, period, forget. I mean, as far as they're concerned, uh, the, you know, the older movies uh, are as far back as they can go, like back to maybe 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. This list doesn't even doesn't have one film made during the 70s. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> this film reflects say. the minds of people who kind of came of age in the 70s and. Yeah were you know uh film reading film criticism back then and shaping their opinions and the people who kind of follow those opinions so like let's say guy lodge who's in his 20s or whatever somebody like that Uh who is still sort of feeling the reverb from that generation but i think our kids don't feel that reverb at all they're not even in that they don't even look to those kind of people the way the guy lodges look to the older critics Yeah. With with any kind of reverence or respect, because they don't know anything about that kind of film criticism. Because basically, that kind of film criticism doesn't exist anymore. Uh-huh. You know, everything's been evened out. They, w- when we were growing up, you and I, there were film critics. You know, they yeah. we looked to them for their, to give us insight about films, to define what makes a great film. We waited for their reviews to come out. We cared about what they said. Nowadays, it's sort of like. It's a free-for-all. Throw it all up on the wall and see what sticks. You know, Emma's going to look at that, and she's going to look at a review by A.O. Scott, and she's not necessarily going to see the value in that Uh unless I teach it to her. So somebody like Glenn Kenny might say, well, you don't think it's important to have this list, and, you know, you teach your kid, and you smart them up, and you show them this. Uh And I could, sure. But I I just don't think they're going to feel the reverb of the impact critics used to have. I don't think that that is something that, this generation is going to know because it's almost disappeared. And this list is so anachronistic in that way. It really does show how things used to be and how they're clinging to the past. But it, it, its impact is greatly lessened because Mm -hmm. the the people out there in the world and the thriving world, look at that and go, huh? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not saying that makes the films any less. I really am not. And yeah. I'm not. I'm not reducing their opinions. I'm trying not to do that. I'm just saying that the the list has much less impact because it's still reflecting those older yeah. views yeah. from those that era. Uh, as one who um, struggled to to even be considered uh, a say, minor member of that elite fraternity of New York uh, writers and critics back in the '70s and early '80s mid-80s, when I was like, didn't know where I was or whether I was even good enough to be a, for a person to, to even, you know, run in those circles. It was a, the, the, uh, it really meant a lot to me, uh, and I'll never forget that kind of God, God-like uh, feeling of, of being with the big critics, and I, I, I completely uh, know what you're talking about, about that venerated uh, uh, status that is completely all but completely gone, except mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the relatively narrow and small fraternity of film critics online and people like yourself and myself and others who recognize the people who are really uh, up there and, and who have uh, done the work and are respected great critics. But that is, uh, as you say, uh, out the window as far as most of the... It's pretty much out the window. I mean, I think it's the difference between walking into the Museum of Modern Art and being dazzled by those guys as opposed to being dazzled by the painters before them who they they broke free from that those styles to create modern art. And I think that, like, for me, I only like to go to the modern art sections and museums. I'm interested in the other stuff, but the, real, the stuff that really thrills me is the stuff by, you know, Van Gogh and Picasso and the, and the modern artists, right? I think that somebody like my daughter and maybe your son, I don't know, as they come of age... They're going to be looking more for the modern artists, the, the Quentin Tarantinos, the you know the Paul Thomas mm-hmm. Andersons, the Martin Scorseses, the the people who right. broke the mold. Mm-hmm. And this list does not reflect those people. It does. It reflects them, but of a different generation, the earlier time. Yeah. Like you can't deny the impact of two thousand one on film. You just can't, right? 
that has to be considered one of the greatest <laughs> films of all time. Why do you laugh every time I bring up 2001? No, I think it's funny because uh, what you're doing is you're almost on a you're you're almost saying it defensively. Now, come on, you can't push that movie out. <laughs> well, I but tried you, to you watch it with my. There are some that might actually say, "Well, I tried I don't know to about that movie." Yeah. I tried to watch 2001 with my daughter. <laughs> It was the funniest thing, you know. It was, it was just so funny watching it with her because she just was because she doesn't really know what came before and why it's such an important film to her. It's just this, like you know, she just she, she just kept imitating that. Wait, what's what's that noise? I don't know. It's just, in the movie. There's this weird low hum that goes through the whole thing. It, <laughs> It's really irritating, you know. That's why I show her when I want to turn her on to Kubrick. I show her Strange Love, and I show her Lolita, and and you know, uh, um, um, mm-hmm. Clockwork Orange. You know, two thousand one of all of his films. While I get that it is incredibly influential, it's the least entertaining to watch of all of his movies. So, um, while I think that I. I in other words, I'm looking at the list of the 2012 film critics, and I'm imagining myself as an 18-year-old remembering dating a guy who knew a lot about movies, right? Mm-hmm. And he, this is exactly the list he would have showed me as, like, the best movies of all time. But how many years has that been? 30 years or something since then? So why isn't this list evolving? Why, why is it only these movies that they're still sticking to? I think it's because it's that same generation that has a stranglehold on film criticism and maybe it always will because maybe there is no more film criticism now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there, you have to be, to be one of them to be one of the elite fraternity, you have to be, uh, come from a scholastically correct background. You have to kind of, uh, you know, you have to learn certain, uh, vespers, you have to know the prayers, you have to know the rituals, you have to be be part of that. Uh, it's it's not something you just kind of waltz in and say, "Hey, I like movies. I like to be a film." You know, it, right. it's, it's really a whole culture that 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 requires certain adherence. You have to know your stuff. You have to have gone to uh, to a to a to a reputable uh, place of study to to really know your directors. You have to. You can't just like waltz in and say you like movies. You know, no, no. So and yeah. this is like reminds me of you know the Woody Allen. Woody Allen's influence on people and like when mm-hmm. Manhattan came out and he sat down and he, he started talking about, you know, what are the greatest things that he, you know, what makes life worth living or, you know, he starts listing them. And, and he was one of the first people that really celebrated the rules of the game. And I also remember how in college, when I was studying film, how my professors would teach us about great movies. And we watched Vertigo and Citizen Kane, the rules of the game. We watched um, the earrings of Madame Du, you know, all these really important films um, I'm just saying that that guy, that film professor, he comes out of that generation of film critics. <clears throat> I just don't know what kind of impact, what kind of meaning it has on our world now. Mm. It seemed to have, when it came out, kind of a wah, 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 you know, it sort of hit with a thud. It didn't mm-hmm. really, the only thing people could really talk about was Vertigo versus Citizen Kane. But nobody really wanted to dig into these other movies too much, I didn't find. But, um, right. <clears throat> By the way, um, can we just talk briefly about what happened two nights ago at the Arrow? If you had yeah. been told, let's say it's seven thirty or eight o'clock or something that night, that if you could just get in your car and zoom down to the Arrow, you would be able to see the Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which oh, is God. sure to be. Were, were you um, you heard about it? The, the I was next so morning? bummed out, but but just I have to close out that one thing yeah. before uh-huh. so I don't get like reamed by the by by people. I just have to say that. I will never stop teaching my daughter about good films that I know to be good. I will always sit down and watch Vertigo with her and show her why it's a good movie. And Citizen Kane, which I've already done with her about three times. She's seen it three times already. So, Uh you know, there are some movies on that list that I will never stop showing her. Uh I'm crushed that they don't think The Godfather or The Godfather 2 are worthy of being in the top ten. I think that's horrifying. Or they they were, though, ten years ago, remember? Right, I know. So give me a break. And they put out a list... Or a, a new stipulation, a new rule that said um, uh, movies that are you know joined together as a part one, part two. You, you you have to think of films as separate entities. Therefore, you may not vote for the two of them. You may right. only vote for Godfather Part Two or way, one, not not as, a, not as a duo. And that ruling killed the Godfather as far as the the top. Well, it, it just makes them look bad, in my opinion, because I think that those two movies. Most people would not argue that they are the greatest uh, films right. ever made. 
All right, so on to Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, yeah, what a drag that was. <laughs> I was. I woke up. I was like, oh, my God, I saw that. Because I always think I wake up early. And my first thought was, I got to tell Jeff. And then I uh-huh. saw you already had it on your site by some miracle. Like you had because, woken up. I'll tell you why. Because for some reason, yeah, I'm sure this happens, but I couldn't sleep after 4 a.m. Something happened. I just couldn't, you know, I just woke up. And then I got online and I saw this guy having written me at almost 2 o'clock in the morning saying, or 3 o'clock in the morning, hey, guess what? They showed it tonight. And then Chris, Chris Tapley had been told it at the same time. And I went, wow, that's, that's amazing. But guess what? Um, uh, you know, um, Ann Thompson has a woman named, uh, named Beth. Um, I forgot her last name. Sorry. But uh, she happened to just be there, and she saw it and filed. Oh, no, doesn't she work? I think she works for them. She works for the Cinematheque. Yeah. Well, she she filed this thing for Anne, and it went up on uh, Anne's column, Thompson on Hollywood, on IndieWire yesterday. And uh, she just happened to be there. But uh, the fact is... Okay. So, uh, what a bummer that, like, if you were the kind of person that I'm going to go buy... I'm not going to go see The Dark Knight or any of the new movies. I'm going to go to The Shining mm-hmm. at The Arrow tonight. You know? <laughs> I wish I... I mean, 10, 20 years ago, I would have been that person going to see The Shining. But... Mm-hmm. You know, driving all the way out from the valley with my kid and all that. I don't know if I could have done it, but I didn't even know it was playing there. That's how out of it I am, you know. So I wish I had known. They have a whole package of DCP films because they just recently instituted a new digital system at the Arrow, which is a big thing for them. Mm, wow. Uh, so I would have gone because, if, especially if I lived in Santa Monica, uh, The Shining mm. is one of my favorite movies of all time. So I definitely would have been there, but... How horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anne says that she would have run down there, except she was in her pajamas <laughs> in bed when she... Well, oh, guess it. what, though? Uh, she, she told me this yesterday. I called her from Las Vegas when I was uh, asking her whether she was tipped off to this thing, which uh, uh, that would have been, you know, um, I'm, I'm glad that somebody got tipped off. But anyway, uh, she said, no, actually, it didn't begin... Because they, you know, Shining was like 7 or 7.30, and then that was over. And then they asked everybody to please step outside and get in a line on the sidewalk while they presumably did sound checks and, you know, ran a couple of reels to make sure it was, it was okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't really start until just after 11 p.m. Oh, my God. Over until we ran until 1.30 in the morning. Holy cow. So it was, she theoretically could have gone down, put, you know, gotten dressed and gotten there in plenty of time, but she didn't. Had I known, I might have I might have actually run down there just for the hell of it. But I don't know. Could you buy a ticket between the two showings? I don't see why not. I mean, they, it certainly wasn't a restrictive thing, and they certainly did not make any speeches, according to uh, uh, Anne's person, Beth, about, you know, now please understand that this is a special right. no, event. No, because it wasn't. Sorry. And you know, we'd like you to please respect that this is not really something to review, but uh, you know, there'll be plenty of opportunity to do that very soon. And just uh, you know, just try and enjoy the film. But this is not a review thing. Uh, we'd like to just wait a little while for the reviews to come out. So try and respect that. They didn't say anything like that. They just said, "Here it is." So it's it's fair game. So. Oh, of course. No, I I think it was it was not a sanctioned by the studio event. It was definitely a Paul Thomas Anderson just decided to do it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is cool. He did it last time with There Will Be Blood, but he did it at Fantastic Fest. He, and he was, according to anonymous sources, mm-hmm. he was planning on showing it at Fantastic Fest. And then and then the Venice announcement came out, and I think that it pissed him off. And he wanted to do some kind of thing like that, you know, some sort of surprise for people he considers to be film lovers as opposed yeah. to people who are in the circuit, Oscar bloggers, whatever, but he hates Oscar bloggers. Right. And... Film critics, you know, he just wanted to show it to film fans. So if you're if you're there at eight seven thirty on a Friday night seeing The Shining, you're going to be the kind of person that's going <laughs> to love the master probably. Mm-hmm. So, well, he did show <clears throat> There Will Be Blood in San Francisco at the Castro. I remember flying up to San Francisco expressly to see it there. Oh, that's right, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, that was before Fantastic Fest. I don't remember the sequence um, exactly, but I remember that I was—I went to the Castro to get my ticket, and I had been told I've got a ticket, and there was Paul and one of his people just hanging out outside. And, and you flew there just to see it, right? Yeah, because I wanted to be on the early thing, and I had heard that it was going to happen. So. That's right. That's right. I remember that now. God, that was a long time ago. And then... 
and then they showed it at the uh, yes, that's right it was a paramount thing so they showed it at the studio afterwards so. mm-hmm. yeah. speaking of 2001 speaking of 2001 there is uh, in addition to what they're doing at the arrow they are doing the last what they call the last 70 millimeter film festival at the academy and they are having 2001 mm-hmm. uh, on the 6th, which is, I believe, tomorrow night at the Academy. There you go, yeah. uh, right all there in 70 out, millimeter. Yeah, so. it'll be all sold out. Everything's sold out in that festival mm. already. Um, but well, it's it, interesting. It, since for folks like for like me and probably you, if you were to write them. Right, right, right. right. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but that would be a glorious experience. I wanted to see Lawrence of Arabia there, but that was sold out, too. Well, um, they, let, they let me in. They did? You asked them? And they just yeah. said, okay, sure? Yeah. Wow. They were, they were nice enough to do that. I mean, I, I don't expect that, but they were gracious enough to, to say, you can, sure, we can cut you a, cut you a ticket. So. Right. Wow. That's great. Um, so anyway, the, the uh, reception for, for the master was good. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit muted compared to There Will Be Blood. It's not the same kind of movie, apparently. Well, that really is not that much of an audience-friendly movie either, and that seems to be the uh, that it's going to be divisive. It's not going. To, it's not exactly something to charm or entertain, but it is a uh, knockout in terms of performances. So that right, seems but with no like narrative, controlled narrative. Like there's no apparently there's really like no plot. It's more like uh, the Lars von Trier melancholia vein is what mm. I heard. I did a back and forth with a guy, a reader of your site and mine named Jesse, who had seen it. And I was asking him a bunch of questions. He had rated it a B plus, And then after talking about it a little bit, he went up to an A minus. He said that all the visual stuff is as beautiful and glorious as there will be blood, but it doesn't have the same kind of heft of the story, which that kind of story dug into the oil man and um, mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis is true. I think this is going to be a little more subjective because what he's talking about is something he can't really talk about, you know, Mm -hmm. which is Scientology, apparently. I don't know, but... uh, If I were he, I would probably say it's not a Scientology movie. I would would stick to that and uh, let people make of it what they will, but I don't see how uh, they can argue it too strenuously once it's out, once people see it. I don't see how that's uh, an avoidable thing, but you know, I guess I would say the same thing. You know, they used a quote that I got from Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman last year, last September at uh, Toronto, in which he said, I don't know what you've heard or what script you've read, but our movie is not about Scientology, trust me. And they put that in their, uh, you know, little uh, Weinstein Company handouts about this thing. So well, don't go in there with any brief <laughs> attitudes about this movie. Where did the Scientology thing come from? The presumption that it's a, that it's a metaphor about Scientology is because uh, it parallels the uh, evolution of Scientology itself, uh, uh, because it began in the early '50s, and uh, there are parallels between. Um, oh, L. Ron Hubbard. And he, um, his, uh, the history of the founding and the uh, emergence of Scientology as a as a uh, entity, as a cultural force, go, dates back to the early '50s as well. Uh, there, so, there are numerous parallels. If you want to just, you know, just Google it, you'll see, you know, parallels between the master and and Scientology. It's, there's, they're quite, uh, quite plentiful. And the and the guy I was reading up on the Sea Org and that whole sect seems like, I mean, in my total ridiculous imaginings, which have no basis in fact at all and no research behind them, <laughs> um, I'm imagining that what Philip Seymour Hoffman is L. Ron Hubbard and. Yeah. Uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is the other guy who starts the Sea Org thing. I think he's a he's more or less a metaphor for a fucked up person who is looking for and perhaps is in, in need of something uh, that is a, a theology and a system and a way of uh, of, of, of living life uh, that that uh, you know all people who are uh, who need and and look for religion or some sort of theology to kind of give order to their lives are people that that are in need of something to give order to their lives you know they're if they're not into religion they're alcoholics or they're doing heroin or they're doing something that's going to carry the weight of existence on uh, and take it take that burden from their off their backs because they they can't handle it and those are the people that tend to be um uh religious you know um, right so you you think that it was about nobody 
that tweeted this or the woman who wrote that review has said anything like this, but I would imagine that the movie must be then about digging deeper into it. It must be about this idea of a shyster guy coming in and people's willingness to fall for something Mm -hmm. to save them. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of, it's not just Scientology. It's all religion, really. It's just that Scientology just happens to be the most modern version of it. Yeah. You know, and it's, um, a, it's a way of, uh, of, of putting everything into a, into a structure and something that, 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 that gives uh, some kind of clarity to the follower, to the adherent. So I understand what that is. I mean, I certainly don't. Uh, I think whatever gets you through the night is what uh, is, is okay with me, as long as you're not harming people or being belligerent about it. As I believe, Scientology... Uh, at least shown that potential, don't you? I mean, when you're talking about the Sea Orcs and about, I mean, what what really went to the really core of my of my nervous system when I heard about Tom Cruise's daughter, um, him wanting to uh, expose her to the basically Scientology training at a Sea Org at that tender age. I thought that was absolutely horrific. That's one of the most horrible things I've ever heard about Scientology or or Cruise for that matter. Mm. So that was um, that. That is to me that then it becomes harmful. Then it becomes uh, uh, egregious. Then it becomes like you know to 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 try and indoctrinate a kid at that age. I think it's just vile. But uh, right, right. But they do. But you know, it's hard for me to know what's true and what's not in that Tom Cruise, Katie Holmes story. You know, it seems like nowadays, even in mainstream journalism, untruths can be passed for truths, and no one really seems to care anymore okay i'm not saying that i'm so that i've got uh you know uh, uh dead to rights uh, facts on this but it was allegedly a factor in her wanting to part company with him as, uh, as his marriage partner i mean he does go through these wives as who are the appropriate uh partners and he um whatever his real deal is he does like being married and having a family unit so. Right, I know it's cre- the whole thing is very bizarre because a lot of us just don't understand Scientology and, and what's behind it. And you know, I mean, if you take just the simple story of the newsroom, how uh, that story broke down. I don't know if you're following it or not, but um, basically they said, yeah, I, I followed that. Yeah, his uh, is um, uh, the last thing that happened. It was Sorkin in front of the several critics uh, at a TV uh, journalism get-together said there was absolutely no truth to him having uh, cut loose uh, some writers and that he had no relationship and never had a relationship with a one of the women uh, writers yeah. who was not uh, fired. Uh, and did she, you follow that story up? What happened at the after that? Oh, uh, no. What, what did happen? Well, now it turns out the Sorkin is lying flat out and no one seems to care. Like there were writers who wrote in to comment on the article uh, on Deadline, who said no. And, and I, Richard Rushfield, wrote about it on his site. I saw the Rushfield thing, but he said if he's lying, and if it turns out that he's well, told two bald-faced lies, that's the last I know about it. The but, Daily is standing by their story, and they have right. sourced. And he said it was an unconfirmed, unsourced story, which is not true. The worst thing he's doing is he's trying to make the Daily Reporter look like a liar. So my whole point about this Sorkin thing is that the news media doesn't care if it's true or not. They just run with the story, which is because the weirdest. It's just story. entertainment, and the cycle is over in forty. The cycle's over. It's not news anymore. Like uh, what's his yeah. name says in Game Change, you know, he says it's not news we're talking about. It's entertainment. Mm-hmm. In forty-eight hours, people will have forgotten the story. Well, Aaron Sorkin got to come out and humiliate that reporter and all the reporters who covered the story, but then nobody doubled down, doubled back, except for Richard Rushfield. To say, wait a minute, that's not true. Why would he? Um, first of all, I mean, um, my understanding is that since it's pretty much if you want to be uh, uh, ruthless and and or or um, impulsive, or or even a, a you know be a, just be a jerk and, and say, listen, I don't like any of you. You've been working for me for a season, but you're all gone. And bye, you know. And I mean, that's sorry, that's not doesn't sound like a very appealing uh, situation. Or, uh, but why can't he just? Say, okay, that's what I did. And and if he went out with this woman, if, I say, I'm not saying he did. I don't know a damn thing. But if he did, why not just cop to it? What's the problem? Because it makes him look like he's not uh, uh, f- fair or he's being, uh, you know, people tend to favor people that they've slept right. with. I guess, Who knows? You know? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it was a weird relationship that was unrequited. Remember when he was chasing around after Jet's girlfriend? 
Uh, maybe it was unrequited. Maybe they only went out a few times. Maybe they just slept together. Maybe she broke his heart. Maybe he broke her heart. Who knows what, what the deal is with it? Yeah. And I think he's defining girlfriend as different than I went out with this girl. He said she's not my ex-girlfriend, which could mean that they oh. just... Yeah, they didn't have a real uh, relationship in his right. mind. It's He's like it's like saying, with Clinton saying didn't, I didn't have sex with that woman. But right, I, exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. It's partly that um, mm-hmm. he also wanted to. He's embarrassed, obviously, by the way the newsroom's been been um, pounced on by critics. He's embarrassed by that. He's yeah. always been a critic's darling, um, and he also said that all the newsroom shows had been filmed and in the can before we ever even saw episode one. So. He, they couldn't change it even if they wanted to. They couldn't go back and edit it even if they wanted to. Um, but between season one and season two, they let go of a bunch of writers. Okay. And um, he doesn't want to admit it. So whatever. I mean, it's not Watergate. <laughs> but it's just interesting to me the way the story went around. And now Aaron Sorkin is looking like he gets to be the smug one because he's the one who corrected the wrong story. Because in today's world, nobody sources their stories anymore. And so I'm going to be curious to see how the whole thing plays out with Aaron Sorkin, but it doesn't matter. I mean, mm-hmm. who cares? The, the, hopefully season two will be better, and that's that, you know. But I, I pretty much decided I don't, I'm not going to watch that show anymore just because I can't stand it. I know a lot of people like it, but to me it's just awful. Well, you, you know what's starting to bother me just a little bit? I wish that Jeff Daniels had been directed by Sorkin to be a little more Chris Matthews-like. Because Chris Matthews has a kind of a run-of-the-mouth vulnerability, right. a, a kind of a, a personality that's, um, that's something that I can roll with. I, I, kind of, I like his manner, his personality. He's pretty much the same guy in many respects. But, uh, uh, but there's something a little stiff, a little pompous about Jeff Daniels. A little. Uh, you God, know? He's so pompous and annoying. And he's always got to have the, the smart thing to say. He's always the one people – it's so high school. It's like a parody of a high, bad high school play. Yeah. And, you know, the best scene that I saw, other than Olivia Munn speaking Japanese, which I thought was really great, was um, mm-hmm. when the black guy told him to shut up. <laughs> That was my favorite because I was thinking, yeah, you know, shut up, Will. Shut up. And not enough people are telling him to shut up. And he's not letting Jeff Daniels be Jeff Daniels because Jeff Daniels isn't Jesse Eisenberg. He's not that asshole. He's not Uh that guy. So it doesn't really work. You know, it doesn't work to have him be that guy. It's either cast him with someone who's like that, like a Jesse Eisenberg type, or let Jeff Daniels be Jeff Daniels. Let him be loosey-goosey and funny and warm and nice. And, you know, it's just he seems to me like he's play acting you know he's like he's not that guy he's trying to do it he's a good actor he's great in god of carnage think of how great he is in that if that guy was will mcavoy the show would be fantastic you know Mm, mm. but he wants him to be too perfect he wants him to be too admirable so he comes off as just smug (laughs) that's the thing it's like you know he's really got his ducks in order i love that he uh there's a, a, a you know a semi-fictional narrative thing that's basically explaining to uh, to people who are watching that the, the who the Koch brothers are and then it explains that they're funders of the tea party you know it's it's nice to have uh, that part of part of the soup the cultural soup out there mm-hmm. but i don't uh, i'm starting to dislike him it's it's funny I dislike I do dislike him too and in fact it's the unfortunate part of it is it's not it doesn't matter what he's saying now that's how bad it is like those things need to be said and Aaron Sorkin is the a brilliant writer who can say those things but mm-hmm. you know we already lived through all that so all we're seeing now is like um I'm Aaron Sorkin and I'm going to tell you what I would have done and this is uh-huh. what you should have done and this is what you should be thinking and you know we've already gone through all this stuff you know it would be better, I think, if we heard him talking about what's happening now, you know, like very specifically to what's going on in the election right now, like this Clint Eastwood thing. Like imagine Will McAvoy taking on that, although maybe he doesn't care because he's supposed to be a Republican. But I don't uh, – I wrote a thing. Uh, did you – now, I understand, by, by the way, that David Poland and Devin Ferracci also wrote something. In fact, I even had – or somebody even wrote about, uh, you know, blogger meltdown about Clint Eastwood being a Romney guy because <laughs> everybody likes Clint Eastwood. Everybody wants to be – Who wrote on, the blogger on, meltdown? No, I was following Devin and Drew's huge, huge fight about it to see those two guys, Battle of the Titans. <laughs> but Devin was De- screaming Drew. 
creaming him. He was just on fire. I've never seen Devin like that, and I have to say, I gained a lot of new, uh, you know, more respect for him after that fight. I was like, and wow, was this a Twitter really, fight? He was a Twitter fight. He could really drive it home. It was and he amazing. was basically saying, "I'm going to try, try and find this." But so there's a whole. Uh, uh, it was uh, great. It was epic. <laughs> right. And then David Pole and all these other people tried to get in on it, but the real juice was between Drew and, and Devin. And Devin was like, "I'm not interested in hearing their side. I just want to obliterate the opponent or something like that. Like I just want them to lose." You know, like he was really, really fierce. It was great. I, I have to say, I gained. He now that to me is what Will McAvoy's supposed to be. What Devin did. If, uh-huh. if Will McAvoy was like that, I would be like, wow, I'm impressed. But he's not. He doesn't come off that way at all. Mm. So, um, but yeah, the Clint Eastwood thing, I can't stress enough to you how I've, you know, been worried about Clint for a while. Like, he, he's just off. His, he's off a little bit. Like, he was off at the Q&A for Jagger. He was kind of lost a little bit then. And the, the Mrs. Eastwood stuff is really bizarre. You're the only person I know who's paid the slightest attention to that reality show i know i know i am nobody else talks about it with me because no one really cares but to me it's like as a clint eastwood fan for many many years that he he would you know he would he would allow this to go on in his home with his Mm -hmm. daughters and his wife where the cameras are in his home filming his pig and his maid um and his kitchen Mm -hmm. and his weird hysterical bizarre like menopausal wife <laughs> and his weird daughter and her boyfriends. I mean, it's just not the Clint Eastwood that I, that I've come to know that he would allow this to go on. He's so, he's always been so private, you know, this is primarily set in their home in the Carmel, uh, yeah. home. Mm-hmm. Is that where it happens? Okay. Yeah. And it's all about the, the two bratty daughters and the hysterical mom. And she's trying to push this band, this, uh, the South African band, to be famous, right? But the show wants to only do with the gossip because the show knows that the only reason people are tuning in is to see Clint Eastwood's daughter and just maybe see Clint Eastwood and to get a peek into celebrity life, you know? They don't care about the band. I mean, if they're like me, they fast-forward all the band scenes and just watch the parts with the sad daughters. Yeah. And the one daughter was beautiful. She's Frances Fisher's daughter with Clint, and she's got these big, beautiful, wide eyes. She's dating this total asshole gross uh-huh. disgusting photographer mm-hmm. and uh all the stuff that she's saying and doing and french kissing and stuff it's just like if clint was of able mind and he saw that going on he would shut it down i'm sure but um but he's not he's just gone he's absent so what this romney thing is about i don't know maybe he would have endorsed him anyway maybe they were friends during mr river maybe clint doesn't want to pay any more taxes maybe he thinks that He's going to protect the candidate who protects the rich. He's in the 1% bracket, from what I understand, so he is interested. Uh, but that's, that's an awfully, that's a disturbingly myopic and, and narrow and selfish way to assess who you're going to vote for mm-hmm. because you want to protect your taxes. Therefore, you're willing to let God knows what else happen. Uh, what, right. When, if this person becomes president, it's just not to mention the Supreme Court uh, potential i mean it's it's really ghastly yeah. when you think about well, it well read what devin has to say because i agree with him absolutely 100 percent. i never thought i would hear myself say that but it's true and the rich people run this country now like there's just no question about it now that they're yeah. citizens united and the super PACs they're buying elections and nobody cares because the right-wing americans think it's all about abortion and gay marriage and taxes mm-hmm. and they're just believing all the stupid stuff meanwhile crooks are taking over totally yeah. I mean, we're more div- as Doris Kearns Goodwin says, we're more divided now than we, or you said, somebody said, than than during the Civil War. We're we're right there. We're as divided right now of the yeah. country. Mm. Well, all right. Uh, thank you. I'm I'm looking at this Devin thing right now, Devin and uh, Andrew, and um, it um, it's it's pretty. Yeah, I mean, he should really put put, put some kind of piece to it, or there should be a back and forth or something. Devin was on fire. Uh-huh. That's all I'm uh-huh. going to say about He was on fire. And David Poland was on it, too. He was freaking out. He was trying to out Devin, Devin, I think. But Devin sort of owned the night, I would say. What's that? Uh, he, what, how was he, David Poland trying to characterize Devin in some... Ne- he didn't, he fa- never, in typical David Poland fashion, he didn't attack Devin or even join the conversation. He had his own parallel discussion at the same time. But okay. nobody was really fighting with him. The reason the Devin one was compelling was because he was fighting with Drew. 
Yeah. And Drew was mad because Devin said, fuck Clint Eastwood. Yes. And Drew was saying that's no way to, you know, Drew was about the, you know, let's have a civil discussion. Yeah. And Devin was about, no, we're past that point. Yeah, because they are not civil. Because they're they're this is madness. This is about gangster. That's and, what he's saying. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. That there's right. no time. There, you know, forget listening to the other side. There is no mm-hmm. equality now between us right. and them. It's right. revolution. Revolution. <laughs> All right, dude. Okay. I guess that does it for another yeah. podcast. It was a very nice discussion, and now may we just <clears throat> talk again if you want to shut it off. You've been listening to episode 87 of Oscar Poker with Jeffrey Wells from HollywoodElsewhere.com, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com, and Phil Contrino from BoxOffice.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music was Everyone Else is an Asshole by Real Big Fish and a Fisherman by the Peach Kings. Thanks for listening.